from the time that we first decoded the human genome until now, if it was a car, the technology has advanced so much that the car would cost 10 cents and go 100,000 miles an hour. Hey, Ram. Hey, Carl. I'm super excited for this interview we have with Ellen Jorgensen. Yeah, absolutely. It's because of Ellen that we met through GenSpace. It's a community biotech lab that Ellen was a president and founder of, and they host so many different events. And then we met at the computational biology meetup. And to make a community event about computational biology is just amazing. Ellen makes these complex topics accessible to everyone. So she's the perfect person to be on our podcast. Yeah, Ellen has a very interesting career in that she worked in biotechnology at biotech companies doing cancer research for many years. And she's also a TED speaker. She's spoken on biohacking and about CRISPR when CRISPR was still relatively new. She did a TED talk about it to dispel the myths of CRISPR. As the bioeconomy advances, more people are going to be hearing about CRISPR and they need to understand what it is. And Ellen has been at that forefront of community engagement. And then now she's a co-founder of this company, Annika Biosciences, which is super interesting. Did you CRISPR anything when you were at GenSpace? It was a theory class, so I didn't CRISPR anything. And I actually walked out of there going, okay, so this is actually fairly harder than people think it is which is a good thing because bioengineering is not simple. And so for the people that think that uh, biotech is cut, paste, grow, it's not as simple as that. That's the fine line, I think, when we talk about biology and we're trying to make it accessible. We do use analogies when it comes to software engineering and that now is cut and paste and drag and drop tools and no code. Um, Will there be no code biology? I don't know. That's something we shouldn't ask Ellen about. We didn't ask her this time around. But she's she's amazing. She's a legend. She's a science communicator. Can't wait for everyone to hear this interview. All right. So we are excited to have Ellen Jorgensen on today. And why don't we just get started by talking about your role and what you're working on these days? Given my history, which has a lot of trying to use biology in unusual ways or trying to do biology in an unusual places, in 2018, when Vishal Buyan, my co-founder, came to me with an idea to use microbes to contain small bits of information, but highly valuable, most people are trying to use DNA almost like a recording device and record entire encyclopedias into it or entire photographs as pixels into it. His idea was that if you had a sufficiently valuable piece of information, it didn't have to be very large and that nature had a way of protecting that information through the types of things that organisms form when they go dormant. So think of a spore or a particle that's highly protected with a naturally derived coating that the organism itself makes. And then it basically sits there doing nothing until the environment becomes better, like food becomes available or water becomes available, and then it germinates or hatches. So that idea was interesting to me because it was different. And 
what he proposed to put into that organism was a barcode. So if you can think of the way that we track goods through supply chains now, a lot of it is that little mark with all the vertical lines that you see on every item in the store that allows people to track exactly where that item went. And you can replicate that actually within an organism by coding it directly into its DNA. That idea of applying biology to tracking and tracing things through supply chains was fascinating to me because it was something that took relatively easy technology to put a barcode in an organism in terms of engineering biology. It's a very easy thing to do rather than some of the harder things that we've learned to do. The idea that you could track things like that using a completely different method that was completely orthogonal and different from the regular barcoding method, either in a place that a barcode couldn't be applied, like an item of food, you could apply it directly to the food. In a situation where a certain amount of stealth was needed, because of course, putting it into a spore or a microbe would be virtually invisible. That idea was fascinating to me. And I thought, this is a really great space. No one has really explored it yet. And let's go. Let's start Annika Biosciences. <laughs> That's amazing. Can we just talk about using DNA as a storage device? It seems very complex, but it does seem like it's going to be very valuable. So DNA is already an information storage device. You've heard it called the code of life. You've heard it talked about that everything that we will be is already contained in our genes. That's a rather simplistic view. We know now that our environment also shapes us, and that is actually biochemical. The whole field of what's called epigenetics talks about that. But there is a vast amount of information in your DNA. And of course, we all know that there are diseases that can be genetic. And now we're finding out with some of the modern science that you can actually correct some of those by correcting the genes. So the information contained in your DNA is really like a giant recipe book for all of the molecules called proteins in your body that do all sorts of actual work and also can be building blocks like components of muscle or hair. And so it already is a vast array of information. What we've discovered is that we can put information into that mix in a way where it doesn't interfere with any of the other function of the DNA, its natural function, but it can be an additional bit of information that our cells don't use, but we can read it because we have learned in the past 20 years or so how to read DNA code very rapidly. And of course, it's a linear chain of four different molecules, and they're always abbreviated G, A, T, and C, because those are the first letters of their long chemical names. The information is redundant because you have two copies. You have a double helix, so the chain actually has a mirror image copy as well. So what the cell does is if one part of it's damaged, the other part can be used to repair the damage. So it's a very stable system for containing information. And it's all wrapped up in proteins and coiled into such a packed 
dense protected area of the cell that if you were to stretch all of the DNA in one of your cells, just linearly, it would be a yard long. And it's packaged into something so small that 10,000 of them can sit on the head of a pin. It's an amazing packaging job of information, vast quantities of it. And so the idea is that perhaps we can store even more information that won't be read by your cell to do anything, but could just sit there and be preserved and read out at a different time. And you can imagine all sorts of crazy science fiction uses for that. You know, a spy whose DNA has information encoded in his finger. We envision something a lot more mundane. There are projects now where you, you send in a photograph and they pixelate it and they take that information and turn it into a code the same way that your computer has certain codes of ones and zeros that mean all the letters that you type and sends all these encoded pictures in DNA to the moon or something. <laughs> but I even knew an artist, there's a fairly famous bio artist who he was working with George Church. His name is Joe Davis. And he was trying to encode the top 10 most searched articles in Wikipedia into an apple tree. And the project was called Discord's Apple because the top 10 things that we search are just horrific. Think, you know, erectile dysfunction and <laughs> so wow. Justin Bieber. Wow, um, that's horrific. You know, <laughs> so this idea of cramming more letters into DNA that have no function except for humans to read them out and decode them has been around for a while and envisioned in a lot of different formats. I know the other, for example, you could sign something that you had created. So very famously, when Craig Venter created the first supposedly synthetic life form of a bacteria that was the DNA was all synthesized in a lab. He signed it. So his name is encoded in there. And also a Feynman quote, the one about if you can't build it, you can't understand it. We had much more modest ideas about DNA and what sort of information could be rapidly and easily encoded and be valuable. So a barcode is something that people are used to seeing on things and People are used to the idea that you can trace something and read stuff out at different points in the life cycle, but it's quite a job to educate an industry that's never really interfaced with biology, mainly this whole supply chain tracking industry. Interestingly, one of the first organizations that got on board with this was GS1, which is a nonprofit that controls most of the barcodes in the United States. So they'll issue suites of barcodes. They have guidelines for how the barcode should be applied in different industries. And they were very interested in one thing that couldn't be barcoded, and that was food that was not packaged. So say you have a crate of mangoes, and those mangoes came from an aggregation center where the mangoes from, say, 20 different farms come in and they all get put in the same bin. And now you can't tell which farm they came from. And there may be some reason that you want to know where a specific piece of produce came from. In the United States, we've had a lot of recalls with leafy greens. And it would be nice to be able to take a sample 
of a potentially offending bag of salad mix or something at the Chipotle bar and be able to tell exactly where the food on that bar came from. And that's something that you can't do with a barcode because a lot of our food supply isn't in individual packages and tracked like that. It's tracked very differently. And a lot of information gets lost in aggregation centers along the supply chain. That was something that we decided was a natural thing to focus on. And so our focus has been on the produce industry. Just because we're a small team right now, we're about 20 people. And we needed to focus on something that we thought was a unique place for our product because we put a very small barcode into a microbe that is found normally in probiotic formulations. It's completely edible. The quantities that you need since our ability to read DNA code is so fantastic. An analogy I once heard that from the time that we first decoded the human genome until now, if it was a car, the technology has advanced so much that the car would cost 10 cents and go 100,000 miles an hour. That's how fast the science of reading DNA code has progressed and how powerful it is now. We use that whole field of study that has yielded these marvelous techniques in order to be able to put very tiny amounts of our barcoded microbes onto food. What Annika is doing is you basically are creating a barcode here at your facility in Brooklyn. The barcode is embedded into a spore, which is inert and food safe. And then at some point in the supply chain, probably as food or produce is being harvested, you spray it or apply it. And so the food has the barcode on it. I'm a big aggregator and I'm creating these lettuce packs and our lettuce packs are making people sick or something is wrong with them. How easy is it for us to trace it back to the origin? We have a special solution that we use to rinse it off of the produce. And then we can collect our little spores and then we break them open and take the DNA out. Actually, it's kind of funny. The way we're doing it now is a very traditional way where you put it in a little vial with particles that are like grains of sand and you shake it really hard. The reason we have to do that is that the spores protect the DNA so well that it's very hard to break them open gently. But that doesn't matter for the readout because we're looking for a very small piece of DNA, the barcode. So if the DNA gets broken into smaller pieces, we don't care because the piece we're looking for is already a very short piece of DNA. You're really looking for specific strings of DNA letters, you can find them. Even if it seems like a needle in a haystack, there are techniques where you can amplify the piece of DNA that you're looking for and really see that it's there. It's admittedly not the same as taking a wand and waving it over a barcode. It's a little more involved. But again, there are advantages that you can't get with traditional barcoding because this will follow the produce through its entire journey. So it can be read out anywhere along the way. Ellen, how long is the DNA barcode? We're working with relatively short pieces of DNA, usually under 200 base pairs. And there are various ways we can make the barcodes too. And from an environmental point of view, I would imagine that these are engineered to be inert. Is the spore going to be dissolved as it's making its way through your gut, or is there potential for it finding its way back into the environment? 
it doesn't really matter because essentially it's not a lie. What we've done is created a process where at the end, the end result is a product that's not living. So it's hard to call it a genetically modified organism because the process of sporulation is a one-way trip for ours. What's sporulation? Basically, when a bacterial cell experiences harsh conditions, it creates a dense layer of protein around its genetic material, protecting it, i.e. turning itself into a spore. Once favorable conditions become available, it activates or germinates, and it's back to business. We've gotten rid of the genes that allow it to germinate, in other words, for the spore to hatch. That's something that we thought was important in terms of environmental safety. It's still food safe. There are other bacillus that get sprayed on your food regularly that are part of organic farming because they're natural insecticides. So you're already eating plenty of bacillus and you're already eating plenty of bacillus subtilis. It's a naturally occurring soil bacteria. But we decided that we wanted our barcoded bacteria to not be alive. And so there's a very high heat treatment step that essentially cooks anything that might be alive in the preparation. And the spores themselves are not alive because it's a one-way ticket into that dormant form and they can't get out. So if we take our preparation and we put it on a little Petri dish with the agar, like you see pictures of bacteria, nothing will grow. You mentioned that you're working with this organization that serves as the repository for barcodes. You said they were interested in being able to barcode food or produce. What was their reaction when you guys first presented them? Oh, they were so excited. You can think of that field as being fairly traditional. When they see an actual innovation, it's very exciting to them. We did a successful pilot with them. They are not actual buyers of our technology, but they have introduced us to people, particularly in the leafy greens industry, that helped jumpstart our journey. And we're very grateful for that, all the help that they've given us. It was a little difficult trying to communicate exactly how the product works. When you work in the field of biotechnology, most of the stuff you're working with is invisible to the naked eye. You don't see it. And a lot of it is conceptual. You're imagining little molecules running around in a test tube or whatever. Most people aren't used to thinking that way. And when you talk about DNA and information, it's not only the information, the way a computer has information on it, but it's also a physical thing. It's a physical substance just like the book that the words on a page are written on a physical book. So with DNA, you're going back to that physicality and trying to explain how they have something called a global location number that's very important to them, which is the location of the farm that's the origin of the produce. And that's the thing that is the most difficult and the most easily lost because things get thrown into crates at the farm They'll often move to an aggregation center. Think of something like a mixed bag of salad. The spinach might have come from one place, the arugula from somewhere else, the romaine from a third farm. And in this case, you could extract the spores from that bag and deconvolute all of that into the actual farms where everything came from. And so they were 
very excited about that, but it took a bit of science communication skill to get them comfortable with what exactly we were proposing. What do the growers have to do or what has been the reaction from the growers to this idea that all of a sudden their produce is also going to be barcoded with this spore? It's funny because they don't really care how it works. They just want to know that it works and that it's reliable and that it doesn't change the product characteristics. Actually, the biggest question has been around what the status is from a regulatory viewpoint. Is it food safe? Yes. Is it a GMO? That's an interesting question because it's not alive anymore. So in terms of an environmental impact, I think there's very little. But in terms of the labeling regulations, it's become very complicated. And all I'll say about that is that we believe the future belongs to modifying organisms. There are huge things that are almost insurmountable problems that crop up that can't be really easily solved in any other manner. Typically, a huge crop that has become the victim of a disease, for example, or climate change and can't be grown in the same place or in the same manner. Sometimes a, a very simple genetic alteration can save an entire industry. That happened with the papaya industry in Hawaii. We believe that eventually people will understand that bioengineering is just a tool. It's neither good nor bad. It shouldn't have any human health consequences unless the actual engineering is deliberately trying to make something bad. We think it's just a matter of time before uh, most of the population becomes more comfortable with it. And it would seem like you guys are defining a standard for what does a biological barcode look like for produce or for supply chains. Is that true? Oh, yeah. We are complete innovators in this field. And one of the things I kept having to tell my co-founder is, yeah, we don't know the answer to that because we're doing something that no one has done before. That's the whole nature of being innovative in this space, is you're going where no one has gone before from many points of view, including regulatory. It's very heartening to me how well all of this has moved along and how far we've come from when we were just two people in a lab trying to engineer barcodes into bacteria. So there's no competitors in the space, nothing. No one's doing anything like that. There's companies that use naked DNA and the issue with that is it's fairly fragile. There might be some things that naked DNA is better for than our spores. In terms of the leafy greens industry and other produce, we really believe that our spores are the best possible solution for this. I think there was also an effort to identify origin of things through their entire microbiome. That's a very complicated thing to do. Naked DNA is free-floating DNA that's not associated with any proteins, lipids, or other molecules that would normally protect that DNA. Sometimes naked DNA is released into the environment when a cell explodes or bursts, and that DNA is sometimes incorporated into another cell. What's a microbiome? This is a term you're probably going to hear a lot on Grow Everything. The microbiome is a community of microorganisms such as fungi, bacteria, and viruses that exist in a particular environment. On humans, we have a microbiome on our skins and in our guts. In fact, our entire microbiome wears somewhere between two and six pounds. 
Soil is also a microbiome. Every square inch or square centimeter of soil is filled with hundreds of thousands or millions of bacteria, fungi, and microorganisms. So there's a microbiome of soil, and there's also a microbiome of humans. First of all, you have to know what different microbiomes look like all over the world. Like when people started doing DNA fingerprinting in criminal cases, you sort of had to know what the population looked like to know whether or not the pattern you were seeing was exceedingly rare or whether it was very common and you hadn't really narrowed down your list of suspects yet. If the reason why you're barcoding things is to differentiate products that are made in different places, then those different places have to have different microbiomes. And that's just a naturally occurring thing. You can't engineer that. You just have to take what's already there. So it becomes like one of those crime shows where they say, oh, this guy, he had some sand on his shoes and we put that into some sort of machine and it told us exactly what vacant lot in Washington, D.C. he was standing in. That's really the stuff of science fiction. You have to cross-reference a whole bunch of things to be able to pinpoint stuff. Something like that could tell you very generally where something came from. It could say, oh, well, it was from a farm somewhere in California. <laughs> the microbiome of soil varies from foot to foot. It's not like you can sequence the microbiome of one grower's area and all of a sudden know that you could pinpoint that. So that just seems like a really way more complicated method for identifying origin versus the solution that Annika's providing, which is, seems so much more elegant. I do want to get into the topic of the insurance industry because that's actually been something that we've been really interested in watching Annika's progress and seeing that you're doing deals with the insurance industry and what does that look like and why are they interested? It was a way for us to give farmers an added incentive to put this onto their crops. So if you can imagine being asked, as you said, to put something else on your crops. And we always try to make sure that we work within the processes that are already happening. So if there's fertilizer being sprayed on the crops in the field, or if they're going through a wash step during processing, our spores can be added at that point. We try to make it the ease of use, first of all. But then the second thing is, what is the motivation for doing anything extra, even mixing it up? And in that sense, we wanted to partner some sort of advantage in terms of insurance with this idea that we could validate where something came from. One idea potentially is the idea that you can offer somebody recall insurance and whether or not they're involved in the recall could be determined by our technology. We're looking for of both at potentially favorable rates for types of insurance that may not be available to farmers now, and also potentially looking at different types of insurance that may never have been offered. And fairly soon, we'll be able to announce exactly what the products look like. I think it's fascinating to think the insurance industry seems like this industry that moves slowly, and yet they have to be innovating, develop new products. And what's happening across the biotechnology industry is innovation and new ways of doing Well, it's more things. than that. They run on data. They always need data. They need more and more data. 
because the better data you have, the more predictive you can be and you can get a better idea of risk. And so our stuff is literally tracking data. Was something actually involved in a recall? That's a question. And that may affect whether or not insurance is issued. Is something actually what it says it is? A lot of companies have made sustainability pledges and they pledge that they get their stuff from sources that use sustainable practices. And if you can mark those things in a way that's stealthy and invisible and hard to copy, then you could validate that they're doing what they say they're doing. And anyone that tries to sue them or whatever, you could turn around and say, no, we validated this. The idea of origin validated is very much useful information to an industry like that. Just the same as they use satellite imagery and weather data and everything else. You also may be able to combine our data with other data and really predict whether or not another event is likely to occur in a certain area. There's already people that are looking at how close are you to water sources, how close are you to cattle operations, how close are you to fill in the blank and making predictions on whether or not a contamination event is going to happen. One of the things you said earlier was that getting the barcoding company on board was that it required some very subtle science communication or very explicit science communication. And I think that plays into your background and your mission of making science more accessible. I was hoping maybe you could talk a little bit about that and just give us an overview of things that you've done on that space. Maybe talk a little bit about how that's been a thread through the course of your career. Okay. And it's funny that you say specifically about insurance because we have an insurance expert on staff now that's helping us develop these products. And basically the two of us spend an hour a week together explaining each other's feels to each other <laughs> because I don't understand insurance and she doesn't understand biology. And we've actually done a really good job, I think, both ways. She's very good at explaining insurance communication, not just science communication. So every field has its challenges. I spent most of my career in biotech industry, a lot of startups. And just by chance, I had a segue for about 10 years into the world of science communication through a movement called DIY bio or do-it-yourself biology. And this was a group of people who were very excited about the idea that this era of biology could be very similar to early computing, where you had the homebrew computer club and you had the birth of Apple and the idea that computers used to be something that sat in a huge factory type building and were giant machines and only used for industry was turned on its head by the idea that you could have a computer on your desktop and it actually would become useful to you. And so people a lot smarter than I am have been talking about time when people will engineer things in their own lives and use biology in ways that we haven't even conceived of to make their lives better and do it in a very unique and personal way rather than having it be in a more industrial way. 
And so making biology accessible to the general public was an idea that appealed to me. But also I felt in terms of communication, there's a lot of pushback on biology. I mentioned GMOs and also this really frightening and deadly anti-vaccine movement that we've seen, particularly with COVID. If you look at states where a lot of misinformation was communicated and the death rates are higher, it's there in black and white why this sort of communication of science to the general public is important. And of course, what they've learned is that if it's from somebody that's trusted, if the communicator is somebody within your circle, not a scientist in an ivory tower or someone on TV, you're more likely to trust the information. So that was what motivated me to get into that citizen science movement and found the world's first community biolab in Brooklyn in 2009. That turned into be a very interesting experience because I found myself at the nexus of a whole bunch of different groups of people, everyone from Homeland Security who wanted to know what we were doing in this lab to the bioeducation community who are very passionate and are trying to diversify who is in biotechnology and getting groups that are underrepresented to participate to the bioeconomy people, people that we're very interested in starting a company and finding funding and investors to the people that are really trying to change policy in the United States such that we have a bioeconomy roadmap that works because we are going to get totally <laughs> beaten by countries like China who are very clear about what they want to do in terms of the bioeconomy. It's go, go, go are putting massive amounts of resources into it. The government is pouring money into it. And I think there has been a wake-up call recently that they're going to outstrip us. Not so much the initial innovation, but the nurturing of those ideas into actual inventions and products and companies and making the bioeconomy stronger. You bring up a lot of great points. How do you demystify genetic engineering through your experience of science communication. I know in the past you've compared it to people being afraid of AI, but now that's becoming a little bit more accepted and more commonplace. What can you say to people about genetic engineering and making them not so afraid of it? I mean, I can say that people were afraid of electricity when it first became common. They thought it was leaking out of light sockets. And now we all have a working knowledge of it. And although we have a healthy fear of getting an electrical shock, we know how to not get it. And I think a lot of hands-on experience is really the only key. And it's good that students are now in AP biology. They're doing genetic engineering experiments. They're doing experiments that won people Nobel Prizes in the 1970s. That is going to go a long way, you know, if our educational system continues to include it. Also, just things like the Impossible Burger. Some of those products of genetic engineering, at least originally, the hemoglobin was taken from the pea plant and mass manufactured in a fermentation through a genetically modified organism so that they could get enough of that to add to the burger to give it that meaty flavor. Most of the people that were eating it, it must have a, a BE label on it, but they're eating it anyway because it's healthier and they want the taste of meat. Just to go back to the original question, I always said that it's hard to be afraid of genetic engineering for actually doing it like with your teenage kid in a community bio lab where the setting is very minimal which is why I like the idea of these community biolabs. And 
My original lab is still going. I also have another one called Biotech Without Borders that's in Queens rather than Brooklyn now. And virtually every major city has a group that's doing that. And these groups are very much part of the community. The lab is not in a pristine lab in a university that you have to go through a security guard to get to. It's often in a community center or some other building where there are a lot of small businesses or makers or nonprofit groups. And there are usually a lot of classes for the general public to come in and do stuff hands-on. So that is an important part of the science communication, the hands-on part of it. The personal experience makes more sense than anything else. I also hate to say it, but people make decisions on an N of one, meaning they'll see something happen to a single person and they'll generalize it. If somebody that they knew had, say, a bad reaction to a COVID vaccine, all of a sudden that becomes a major fear, even though it may be one person out of 10 million that has any reaction at all to it. That whole N of one, if it's somebody that they actually know, it's hard to get away from that. So I think you actually do have to engage on a one-on-by-one basis with people to talk to them about this. And a certain amount can be done through something online or a movie, but it's great to have people actually come into the lab. Speaking of movies, is there any recommendations that you have in terms of movies or books that help educate about biotechnology? It seems like every movie that has anything to do with genetic engineering is always a dystopian story. It's always that the genetic engineering made something terrible happen. That's the thing that really bothers me about that sort of thing. Certainly, there are certain societal concerns that are way beyond the scope of my company, which doesn't do anything with humans at all and isn't, as I said, a live organism. But the idea that we can now alter the DNA of humans and have done so in biomedical situations to the great benefit of the individual, such as the experiments that are going on right now where they're curing sickle cell anemia through a CRISPR-based therapy, curing eye diseases with an actual old-fashioned gene therapy approach. Those are all major medical wins. But there's always the question because certainly CRISPR can be used at the level of an embryo. And a lot of people in the field have been talking about it's possible we should start thinking about how we want to deal with this into the future and asking questions. Of course, the best movie for that is a movie called Gattaca, which is about a society that has taken that to the nth degree and has mainly an engineered population that are engineered to be as perfect as possible. And the movie is a story about the human spirit and about somebody who happens to be a naturally born person who is relegated to janitorial duties, but dreams of being somebody on an outer space mission. I highly recommend it. Was there anything that we didn't cover that you think we should have covered today? I'm just hoping that there's some realization by the general public to go from an invention at lab bench scale to something that can help people, a product of some sort or an intervention of some sort. If you think of the COVID vaccine, for example, The production for that had to be ramped up in a very short period of time because it was a national emergency. And that was a very difficult process. And one of the things that we learned is that our capacity to make these new technologies, and it's a different type of making than you normally think of. It's not like making concrete in a concrete mixer. 
it's not that sort of material. It's something that has to be grown in usually a liquid, just the way you would brew beer or something like that, where the yeast is turning the sugars into alcohol. In this case, whatever it is, taking the food and turning it into a useful molecule of some sort. And those facilities have to be ramped up in a big way. And that's known as our biomanufacturing capacity. And there's a lot of talk about having the capacity not just be with a few large companies. Think of what happened in the pork industry when only a few large companies and people in their warehouses got ill. And all of a sudden, pork became rare on the shelves during COVID. Or the baby formula thing, when there were only like a few manufacturers in the United States who could make baby formula to the specifications that were needed. We really need to have a distributed capacity to make these new products that are going to be propelling us into this next century with all the perils of things like climate change and pollution and everything else that we're trying to work on. So I just want to make a pitch to remember the bioeconomy. It's funny because you mentioned yeast and I had put it on Twitter. Has anybody calculated the value of yeast or E. coli? And then later in the day, we did some searches. Yuram found this book, The Rise of Yeast from 2018. And it turns out that the authors in the book estimated that yeast alone is worth $900 billion and employs 3% of the U.S. workforce across brewing, wine, baking, yeast, insulin, and other products. So that's a significant chunk of money being produced by one microorganism. There you go. All right, Ellen, thank you so much. We have a lot more to cover, so we're going to invite you back. Thanks for taking the time today to speak with us. Oh, this was so much fun. Oh, thank good. you I'm very glad much. You. Wow, that was a great interview. Yeah, I love it. Ellen, when she said the future belongs to modifying organisms, I was like, wow, she brought so many great points. Yeah, no doubt. And in fact, that Annika is the first company to either be working with the insurance industry or potentially offering insurance as a service based on their technology is amazing to me. And it's just another example of how biotechnology is touching and changing every industry on the planet. What did you think about what Ellen said about GMOs? Yeah, she is such a great science communicator. Like the statement she said when she mentioned GMOs won't interact with the human body unless it's deliberately programmed to. I think that really helps. It helps me think about GMOs differently. I guess I have a science background and everything, but I never thought about putting it into those words that, okay, tomatoes are genetically modified. Do I need that to be on the label? Am I worried about it? No, because it's not going to interact with my body. It's not going to make me have cancer or autism or something like people might suspect or some type of conspiracy theories that are out there. So I really like the fact that she simplified it just by saying an engineer organism won't interact with the body unless it's deliberately programmed to. I think it's really important. Again, as biology takes over the economy, we need more and more people to clearly state what is happening behind the scenes at biotech companies. And Ellen does such a good job at telling those stories and demystifying in so many ways. But what did you think of her statements about storing information in DNA? What would you store in DNA, Ram, if you could? Store all of my passwords. 
<laughs> as long as I can retrieve them easily. I always thought about I'm creating a whole life online um, on social media, my bank accounts and everything. I want to secure the information, but make it accessible to people. I guess I could put it in a will. Maybe putting in DNA is a better alternative, but I don't know what about you, Carl. What would you put in DNA storage? I just think of all the photographs that my parents have. My dad has a box of slides that he started taking like in the 50s and 60s, which you've never digitized. I think it'd be really interesting to digitize all those and drop them into DNA storage so that we could pass them on to future generations, whoever those might be. But now we're veering off into other territory that it doesn't have to do with growing everything. But a great interview. I really enjoyed it. Thank you again, Ellen. And thanks, Iram. Anything else you want to tell our listeners? So to the audience, what would you store on a DNA storage? device? What companies or applications would you create if you can store information on DNA? We always ask that you share your thoughts about this episode or others, any comments, any ideas that you have, any people that you think that we should be interviewing, please write to us. Our information is in the show notes. Thanks. And I look forward to seeing you on the next episode. Bye-bye.